One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories. This is the podcast that generates biography using music. We mine the connections between songs and memories in order to bring out the storyteller in our guests. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. My guest today is Tom DeMarkey. He's a writing professor at Florida Gulf Coast University and director of the Sanibel Island Writers Conference, which marks its 13th year in November. We don't normally use our guests' official bio statements because they tend to be rather drab, but not Tom's. Here we go. Quote, We're not writing short stories, restaurant reviews, and essays, teaching, sleeping, or cataloging his CDs. You'll find Tom reading biographies of jazz musicians and dead presidents, bouncing up and down on an elliptical glider, or meeting with colleagues to discuss the Sanibel Island Writers Conference, which he directs. Because of his haircut and monochromatic fashion sense, he is often mistaken for a police officer. End quote. I don't know Tom super well, but via our Facebook connection, I have a strong sense that music plays a fundamental role in his life and approach to, well, probably just about everything. So here we go, down the path of musical memories. Hey there, Tom DeMarkey. How you doing? All right, Mike Canary. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me in. Do you really still have CDs? It's pathetic. <laughs> uh, I have CDs coming in every day still, CDs and LPs. In fact, uh, I just moved into a new home and I'm putting an addition on it to accommodate my collection. Uh, how big is your collection? How do you store it? Do you still have the plastic cases and the liner notes? Absolutely. Uh, I'm all in. And I still have uh, – I have so many shelves that I had to have custom built. And right now it's around 22,000, 23,000 LPs and CDs. Is is any of it digitized or do you have an online source for music or do you just pretty much stick to that as your medium? Um, I, I have some of it uploaded onto my computer and um, – but – I don't think that there's a hard drive large enough to accommodate that much music. Uh, and now, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a total Luddite. I do stream music and, you know, I have Alexa and I listen to things through my Amazon app and everything. But I do enjoy still reading liner notes and having the physical thing. It's not just the art. It's the artifact. Is it also the the quality? Because, you know, I mean, a CD, it's digital, but it's still uncompressed, and, and albums are obviously analog, and so they're as smooth as it gets, or, or is it just because you're you're used to having the, the artifacts that go along with it, and that's just you're going to stick with it? Um, a little of both. I mean, I think, you know, I'm not really an audiophile. I'm not one of those guys who has tube amps and you know, a mixing board or these $10,000 uh, speakers like some of my friends. Uh, I listen to most things through my computer uh, th and through my car stereo. But um, I do think that there is a difference in quality between streaming and, you know, listening to a CD or especially an LP. What's your go-to Pandora channel, if you have one? I don't have a Pandora channel. Okay, okay. I so don't you, have Spotify. So okay, that you're the you're the first character we've had on this show that hasn't <laughs> hasn't had an answer for that. Which I guess it fits in. If you've got twenty two thousand CDs and albums, then that's you know that is what it is. I know it, it's crazy. I guess I just um, I would feel guilty if I weren't listening to my own music all the time. And that's not to say that I'm not always searching for new music. I mean, somebody doesn't amass a 22 to 23,000 um, 
CD and LP collection without, you know, trying to broaden his listening horizons. Um, but I usually do it through, you know, listening to sound clips uh, online, you know, on YouTube or on Amazon, or a lot of it comes through my um, my network of fellow obsessives. I have a lot of friends who are also big music fans and collectors, and we're always recommending things to each other. Do you ever uh, get musical recommendations from your students or vice versa? Do you ever pass musical recommendations along to your students? Absolutely. My students are constantly broadening my my horizons, and um, I exchange things with them all the time. Um, in fact, I brought you a couple of CDs, uh, mixed CDs, because what I do is every semester I have my students uh, each facilitate a a classroom discussion. And when they do, the day that they do it, I give them a mix CD or, you know, just a regular CD of a full album. And the last few years, it's become painfully obvious that I'm an old man. Yeah, they're like, what is this round silver thing, sir? Uh, (laughs) One student said to me a couple weeks ago, she said, it's so cute that you burn CDs for us because – you know that most of us don't even have the technology to play this, right? Right. And so I ha- and so sometimes I'll say, "Hey, here's your CD," and they're like, "That's okay." You need to start buying like little like like five meg jump drives in bulk. You can probably get them exactly. for about fifty cents a piece these days, and you can hand those out. Exactly. You, you would be slightly less luddite ish if you did. That. <laughs> um, oh. Every once in a while, though, um, they take it and they come back and they actually say, "Hey, I listened to that in, in the car on the way back to visit my parents or something." And you have interesting taste in music. And I know what I mean when I say something is interesting. Uh, so, you know, but I, I, I also get recommendations from them all the time. And, and that's great. So uh, so you obviously make mix uh, CDs or mix, you know, things. Did you make mix tapes when you were uh, younger? Yes, yes, uh, all the time, all the time, exchanging them with friends. Uh, you know, I did the high fidelity thing where I would make them for girlfriends right. uh, in an effort because I, I lacked – the language to articulate my emotions. So I let, you know, Elvis Costello sure. or David Bowie do the talking for Was me. Was it ever an effective technique of, you know, finding a girlfriend? Um, probably not. I, usually I didn't make that leap until, you know, I was a date or two in or yeah. a phone call or two in and I knew gotcha. that, you know, th- there was some interest to begin with. Do you remember the sort of the tension that you would feel like, like once you give them the, the, the tape – and now you're kind of – you go back and you listen to it kind of through their ears and you try to imagine what they're thinking when they're interpreting the songs that you're trying to hopefully instill into their brains. Absolutely. And, you know, um, again, I, I just lacked the uh, the articulation to, to express myself um, coherently back then. And so I really hoped that they would listen to the song. And think that I was much deeper and more thoughtful you than I actually been, was. You might have been that deep, Tom. I was not that deep. I was I was a, a, a puddle. <laughs> what uh, What was the musical background of your childhood? Um, growing up, you know, uh, probably like most people, the first music I was exposed to was was through my parents and and really through my mom because my dad was. Uh, I'm sure my dad is a music fan to some degree. Uh, I've seen Tony Bennett in concert with him. Uh, I took him to see Tom Waits. I, I, I got him tickets for Elton John, and I know that he enjoys music, but he never played it at home. And so my mom, from a very uh, from my earliest memories, my mom would play records, and I remember dancing around 
the uh, the dining room with my sister and my mom to things like um, John Denver, hmm. Grandma's Feather Bed, and um, Country Roads, and uh, Simon and Garfunkel, things like that. Joan Baez. Where would you have been at this time? Where were you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, and um, that's where my dad's from. My mom's from Brooklyn originally. And so this is the early 70s where my my kind of um, – my musical foundation is is being put down. And uh, like I said and, – and then, you know, um, for some reason and I'm not sure why. I don't know where the impulse came from. But I started to kind of branch out and look for my own music from a very early age. And I just remember – uh, and you might remember this, those commercials on TV for like KTEL collections. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of country songs or rock songs mm-hmm. or top 40 songs or whatever. I was hooked on hits from the 50s at one point in my life. Oh, yeah. I had the Fonzie <laughs> album that had all these great 50s tunes like in the still of the night on it um, because I was a Happy Days obsessive. Uh, but I uh, I remember saving up some money either from Christmas or my birthday and mailing in to buy an Elvis Presley Greatest Hits double LP. And um, that and this 45 by a band called Paper Lace. They had a song called The Night Chicago Died. And I think their other big hit was Billy Don't Be a Hero. And uh, and I remember buying that for a couple of bucks off one of my neighbors, off one of the older kids in the neighborhood. And those were like my first two I bought them myself. Do you still and have them? I cared about them. I think, or, or, or copies of them at this point, maybe. Uh, I don't have the paper lace. I think the Elvis LP might be back at my parents' house in Peabody, Massachusetts, among my mom's Simon and Garfunkel and John Denver albums. You might have to search that out. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's get to your first song. What do you What do you have for us? And uh, do you want to uh, you know start with a story, follow up with a story? Well, I mean, the first song I chose, and I got to tell you, man, it was Sophie's choice when you told me I had to pick three songs uh, that kind of told my story. I love putting people over the coals. Oh, man. And of course, I've second-guessed all of these. But, but, you know, I I believe in all these songs, and they definitely have played a a big role in my life in various ways. But the first one I chose is by Tom Waits, and it's called I Don't Want to Grow Up. And that was kind of... The, my theme song for for many years of, of Arrested Development where I really did not want to grow up. Uh, but Tom Waits, I came to kind of late. I think it's it's on the Bone Machine album and I think that album came out in 92 or 93. And so that would have put me at 23 or 24 years old. And um, my sonic brother, this guy that I grew up with named Kevin, he introduced me to Tom Waits. He said, you got to check this guy out. You got to check him out. And he gave me a copy of Bone Machine. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this album, but not, it's – Not specifically. It's very clanky, very discordant. I mean it's 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 quite beautiful. You mean and, Tom Waits could be there? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, again, my buddy Kevin, uh, he, he came up with uh, what I think is the best description of Tom Waits I've ever heard. He said um, – if a pawn shop could sing, that's what Tom Waits is, sounds like. That's beautiful. Yeah. And um, so I listened to Bone Machine, which is which is very, very dark and strange and clanky. Um, I mean, it's called Bone Machine. So it's like everything in there is very percussive and sounds like a skeleton that's kind of falling down the stairs. And I listened to it and I said, man, you know, Kevin usually is is spot on, man. But this, I don't know. 
and I was used to dis- some discordant music, and, right. I, and I liked stuff that wasn't necessarily top forty and polished. But it, it didn't resonate with me initially, and so then he made me a tape. On one side was Tom Waits' um, album uh, "Heart of Saturday Night," and on the other side was his album "Small Change." And when I listened to those, it really clicked and I kind of wore out that tape and then I went to Bone Machine. I returned to Bone Machine and um, and then that clicked with me as well. And um, I Don't Want to Grow Up is just this great song um, that, like I said, kind of defined where I was at that time. I was working uh, – I had just graduated from college and I was working in a law firm and it – it just and I thought I wanted to go to law school, and then I just said, you know, this isn't for me. Working in a law firm, you know, cured me of that desire, and I saw that a lot of the lawyers who work there uh, seemed very unhappy. And a couple of the younger ones took me aside and said, "Don't sell your soul, man. Don't do this unless you really love the law. Then you should do this. But if you're just doing it for the money, if you're just doing it because you think it sounds like a cool career." It's it's probably not going to be for you and, and you'll regret it. And a couple of them said, I regret it and I'm just going to work long enough to pay off my quarter of a million dollar student loan right. and save enough money to buy a bar in Key West and then I'm out of here. And uh, and so I started thinking, OK, well, what do I want to do? And I uh, I decided to apply for grad school for creative writing because one of my one of my college professors said, you know, you you always enjoyed writing stories and you seemed to have fun with that and you were you were okay at it and so you should see if you can pursue that. And so I said, okay, and I, I sent out my stories and my applications to a bunch of different universities and one of them was Cal State, Fresno. And that's where Philip Levine the poet was teaching, although he had retired by that time. And uh and I applied there and I got in and from an early age I had said Someday I'm going to go to California. I had this very kind of Jack Kerouac dream of driving across the country, you know, in a van and and moving out there. And weirdly enough, at that time, I owned a van. <laughs> and so uh, I Ready got Ready to it. pounce on your dream. Yeah, yeah. And so I gave my notice at the law firm and uh, I drove across the country and I, I went to grad school. And the whole time I was listening to Tom Waits. And how old were you at that time? I was – this was 1994 by now. So I was 25. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hear it. This is I Don't Want to Grow Up by Tom Waits from his album Bone Machine. It's Tom DeMarkey's first song on this episode of Three Song Stories. So there's a uh, question that we've asked, um, you know, would your 14 or 15-year-old self be happy with how you turned out? I'm going to rephrase it for this. Would your 24 or 25-year-old you that drove cross-country listening to this song be happy with how things turned out? I think so. I think so. I think the 24 or 25-year-old person driving across the country at the time had dreams of going and getting his degree and then becoming uh, a best-selling writer and, you know, critically acclaimed writer. That has not happened. Um, and that's okay because uh, I really enjoy where I am now. I love my teaching. I, when I went out to California – I did not have plans to become a teacher. I really had plans to become a writer. And um, – but then I got into teaching when I was out there because it helped pay the bills. It helped, right. it helped you know, defray tuition costs. And I just kind of took to it. Uh, I didn't expect that to happen at all. 
And um, once I got into teaching, I, I, and I still enjoy writing, and I'm, I'm still a voracious reader, but the teaching kind of took over. And and that's how it was for, you know, up until this day. But but then I also got the opportunity to um, direct the Sanibel Island Writers Conference, and I love that too. And so both of those things, plus being a dad, takes up a lot of time. Sure. Uh, and so there isn't as much time for writing as there used to be. Uh, but I, I do still make time for it every day. Did you ever or have you written any long-form fiction? Did you have a novel that you were working on at some <laughs> yes. point or did you ever finish one? Uh, yes, I have I have written a novel. Thank God it goes unpublished. I, I now use excerpts of it as uh, examples in my classes for my students of how not to write. It is so god-awful. And um, I wrote it when I was out in California. It was my thesis. And um, it's it's really, really terrible. But that's okay because that's what you have to do. You have to write well, a bunch yeah, of bad can't. stuff. Well, exactly. You can't – yeah. It's you, part of those 10,000 hours of practice. Exactly. You know, uh, and I've written a couple of short story collections or I've written enough stories that they would fit into a couple of collections and, and you know – a number of the stories have been published independently, but I've never, I've never compiled them into a collection and submitted it, you know, to make it published. And and again, that's okay. Um, but I do continue to write short stories, and um, and I send them out, and every once in a while, I get a hit. Can you imagine a time like in retirement someday when you might sit down and try to return to a novel or something longer than a short story? Absolutely. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went on sabbatical and um, I was I was really lucky that I got the year off. And I, I spent that year writing the rough draft of a novel. And when I say rough draft, I mean, I mean really rough. Right. And um, – and I, I'm I'm very inefficient in that I write longhand first before I like you, l- yellow legal pad precisely precisely <laughs> and um, and so I have a huge stack of yellow legal pads full of my scribblings and now I need another sabbatical to go through them and see what maybe five percent is worth developing because there's there's a big throwout rate I would say probably ninety five percent of right. it is crap. Well, you know, 5% of a big stack might be something. Yeah, yeah. If I'm lucky, you know, there's 50 pages that maybe can be the the foundation for something longer. Let's talk about um, a song. You said Sophie's Choice earlier. What's song number four? Was there one where you had to, you know, you had to whittle it down? You're like, okay, these two I'm going to stick with. Then I, you know, I, I know that it's going to be either this or that. Was there a fourth song or did you have like 30 fourth songs? I had, I had like... 3,400 fourth songs. <laughs> um, I mean, there are just so many songs uh, floating around in my head. Uh, again, I, I refer to my buddy, Kevin. Uh, he and I still touch base uh, all the time. We're either uh, texting or talking on the phone uh, at least a couple times a week. And when we get together, almost always the question is, what are you listening to? And that's both like in terms of what are your listening habits lately, but also what song is in your head this very second? Because there's always a song in my head and there's always a song in Kevin's What are you listening to right now, Tom? Right now I'm listening to Changes by David Bowie. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And for some reason in the background, there's some Miles Davis from Sketches of Spain. 
a peek into the brain. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's just this ongoing jukebox. And, and, and I don't think I'm unique in this respect. I think that probably there's a song in your head right now, too. And most of the people who are listening to this podcast are hearing songs right now in their heads. Uh, voices in our heads that yeah. are musically driven. Um, when was the last time you did karaoke? I have never done karaoke. Okay. Unless uh, you count the shower. Okay. Well, then that's my next question. What is your favorite song to sing along to? Um, and uh, maybe you have to be alone when that happens. I don't know. Oh, boy. Um, God, what is the name of that song? It is a weaker than song. I, I my, my third song. Can I give it away? Ah, sure. What my third song yeah, is here. Yeah, why not? My third song here is um, by a group called The Weaker Thans called um, A Plea from a Cat Named Virtute. But uh, John K. Sampson, the leader of that band, wrote a follow-up Virtute song on their, their next album called Reunion Tour. That's one of my favorite songs to read, uh, to, to, uh, to sing along with. Um, I also like singing along with Dylan because um, I'm not a great singer. <laughs> and uh, and I love Dylan's voice, but you don't have to be a technically gifted, correct? You know, singer to to sing. And his lyrics are so dare I say lyrical that it's fun to. I mean, I also like to sing along to Dylan. I play my little ukulele, and I, I have Dylan songs that I sing along to, and it's just fun to learn them because they're just so put together so interestingly. Yeah, yeah. What what, what Dylan songs do you like to sing? Um, you know, um, um. um I'm drawing a blank. I mean, I've got like five of them in my head. Um, um, <laughs> Tangled Up in Blue? or well, I know Tangled Up in Blue. I know Tambourine Man. I mean, the long ones. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, You know Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands? Uh, I know it, but I don't know it, I, I don't know it well enough to sing it. That's a long song. Um, you know, um, Don't Think Twice. It's all right. I've got, a, I've, got yeah. a, I've got one of that that I can do, like picking version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I like me some Dylan. What was the Weaker Than song? Uh, Virtute the Cat Explains Her Departure. One of the reasons I like to sing along to that, it's got kind of a lullaby sort of cadence. And when my son was a baby and he'd wake up in the middle of the night, um, you know, my wife and I would take turns rocking him back to sleep. You know, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. It's dark. It's quiet. And we try to rock him back to sleep while he was crying. And um, we'd sing songs to him sometimes. And, you know, You Are My Sunshine was one. But uh, uh, I kind of got sick of that after a while. And uh, so then I started singing that song, you know, the, the Weaker Than song, and it always put him to sleep. So um, I, I really like singing that song. Mm. By the way, I'm a big Weaker Thans fan. So. You are? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so great to hear. None of my students have heard of the Weaker Thans. Yeah, no, I, I, I only discovered them, you know, I don't know, six, seven years ago, something like that. And uh, I was immediately like, wow, how did I miss these guys? So anyway. John K. Sampson, uh, he, he's the poet laureate He's of lyrics. He's so good. I concur. Um, you're the director of the Santa Bell Island Writers Conference. You guys sometimes have music involved in it. Yes. Can you reflect on songwriting? As it fits into writing, you know, I, I I think that songwriting at its best is as good as any poetry, as as any short story or any novel. I, I think it is absolutely um, a high art form, and and it's very very accessible to anyone because it comes along with a beat and a melody, and you can sing along to it, and. Um, so I just started thinking, okay, I, I'm sure I'm not alone in this belief and in this feeling. So I started 
looking at different songwriters uh, who kind of embodied the poetic spirit and who were just very, very good lyricists and good – because they're doing character development. They're doing plot development. Uh, they're doing some verbal gymnastics and they're doing it, again, with a melody and a beat in a way that's very accessible. And so um, – and, you know, a lot of – in a lot of ways, lyric writing was my gateway drug into literature – um, because I loved a, a, a clever turn of phrase sure, or, yeah, or you know, the that. way that a song <clears throat> developed a character or developed a drama or was funny. All of these things are inherent in narrative and, and in poetry. And so I just thought, okay, who are some great lyric writers who are, you know, who can write a song and um, who might be good teachers too. And so I just made a wish list and started kind of cold calling people and John K. Sampson from the Weaker Thans was the first songwriter we ever brought what? to Sanibel. I didn't know that. He's been there twice. When's he coming back? You know, I don't know. I would love to have Get him back. Get on it, anytime. Tom. John, if you're listening, <laughs> it's an open invitation. See, I anytime. didn't know that. that that's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. And he was, he was terrific. Um, very sweet, humble guy. Incredibly bright. Uh, you know, very, very literate. He owns a book company. Hmm. Um, and he was like the arts director of Winnipeg in, in um, Canada a few years ago. I mean, he's he's very much tied into the literary community. He's published books of poetry. And, you know, some of his lyrics are sonnets. You know, some of his songs are based on sonnets. Oh, I believe it. So the guy is a serious formalist, too. I, I, I've, t I've described this to people. The craziest thing to me about The Weaker Lands, and I can't wait to get around to playing the song, is when you look at the lyrics – they're just like it's like a poem, or, exactly. or you know, there's no like verse structure core. You know, I mean, it's it's just line after line, and yeah. then you listen to it to the music, and it's like, how does that all work together like that every time? It, it blends perfectly, and and again, it's catchy. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You can, every you can song tap has a your hook. foot. Absolutely. You can hum along, yep. and you find yourself singing along to it as you do with the best pop music. Yep. Even though it's kind of folky, punky rock. Uh, well, people will hear once we play the song. Well, let's uh, let's get to song number two, which okay. is not the weaker than. No. Um, what is song number two? Uh, Planets by the Scottish band Teenage Fan Club. And uh, for those of you who don't know Teenage Fan Club, which includes me, you don't know Teenage Fan nope, Club. No, I okay. do not. Led by a guy named Norman Blake, who's an incredible songwriter. I think their biggest claim to fame, and it's kind of sad that this is their biggest claim to fame, but. In 1991, the year punk broke, supposedly, uh, Nirvana's Nevermind came out. And uh, so did Teenage Fan Club's Bandwagon-esque. And Spin Magazine that year named Bandwagon-esque the album of the year. Really? And there was kind of this outcry that it wasn't Nevermind. Sure. Um, but Bandwagon-esque is a kick-ass album. It's so good. And and – they just write pop gem after gem after gem. I mean, they're very much in the vein of uh, a band like uh, Big Star or R.E.M. Okay. or The Beatles. And um, just just beautiful melodies. And Planets comes from an album called um, Songs from Northern Britain. And uh, when that album came out – and I loved Bandwagon-esque and I actually do like it more than I like Nevermind – and uh, although Nevermind is a fine album, of course. And uh, but when songs from Northern Britain came out, 
I, I was just completely blown away. I'm like, wow, they, they've even outdone themselves. And that was uh, one of my soundtrack albums for the year it came out, which I believe was 97. And in 98, I was still in my I don't want to grow up phase. And so I'd gone out to California. By the way, are you grown up now? <laughs> you sh- I don't know if I'm the right one to judge. <laughs> in in some ways, absolutely not. Uh, but, you know, I got a lot of gray hair now. And I'm a dad and I got a mortgage. So in some ways, I am grown up. You know, I've got a retirement plan. So uh, by that barometer, I guess I'm a little bit grown up. But I'm still a kid uh, in terms of my enthusiasm about music. And uh, so anyway... Uh, I had spent two years in California getting a master's degree, and then I spent two more years in Miami getting an MFA in fiction. And so I was putting off adult life as much as I could uh, through pursuing higher education. And, you know, I wasn't looking for a real job necessarily. I was thinking still, you know, I just want to write a lot and, you know, maybe make some pizzas to to pay for beer money. And, uh, and again, my buddy Kevin and I uh, – he had a real job, and but we we said um, let's go to England for a couple of weeks, or let's go to Great Britain for a couple of weeks and just explore. And so we, of course, came armed with our cassettes because we knew we were going to rent a car and be driving around the countryside. And so we had the Clash, London calling, you know. And uh, but as we drove from, uh, we were we were in um, the Lake District. Of, um, of Northern England and then we drove across the border into Scotland and we were listening to Teenage Fan Club songs from, from Northern Britain and I just remember this song Planets playing as we crossed the border and it just – and you'll hear the lyrics. Um, it, it was just the perfect soundtrack for it and, um, and that trip was kind of pivotal uh, because it really was kind of the last hurrah of um, – not consequence-free living, but of kind of – I was saying goodbye to my youth in a way because um, I had graduated. I had my degree and I was, and I was you know, living back at my parents' house. And, but I knew that I was going to be moving to New York to be with my then-girlfriend and getting a real job. And, um, and so you know, it was in the summer and we just decided we're going to go and do this thing. And then we're going to move on with our lives. And so I wanted to do it with my best friend. And um, and funny thing is he had just started dating this woman. They had gone out maybe once or twice. And when he got back from that trip, he started dating her seriously and he ended up marrying her. So in a way, it was the end of his carefree youth. Um, and he entered into hmm. adulthood by getting married. And I guess I entered into adulthood by getting my first real job teaching. Hmm. All right, this is the the end of Tom DeMarkey's childhood. (laughs) Uh, This is Planets by Teenage Fan Club from their album Songs from Northern Britain. You're listening to Three Song Stories. It's biography through music. I am going to have to check out some Teenage Fan Club. Because I have never heard that, and that is right up my alley. It's gorgeous, right? Oh, yeah. And it's easy to play on guitar. Like, I'm a terrible guitarist. It's a percussion instrument in my hand. <laughs> but I can play that song. And I'm sure you could play it easily. And I can, you know, that I can, I'm, I'm, I was channeling your drive with that song and that time and that place. That must have just, you know, 
oh, synced it, it all up together. Perfect. I mean, seeing like fields of peat moss and driving toward these mountains and and listening to that album uh, was was you know truly magical. How often does uh, Teenage Fan Club uh, end up in your CD player? <laughs> uh, you know, not often enough. I mean, I probably I know I revisit them. You know, every year there are certain bands that you just keep coming back to, and luckily they're still together, and so they release really? new music every couple of years. So that gives me a reason to. Have you seen them live? I have not seen them live. Uh, do they play in the states? They do. They played. I think they were on tour either last year or the year before, but they didn't come to Florida. And a lot of bands that I like don't come to Florida, so I do a lot of traveling for concerts. What's the farthest you've gone? Uh, London. Okay. You yeah. went. You went. You were in London and saw a show, or you went to London to see a show. I I extended a vacation in London to see a show. Okay. Um, uh, but <laughs> well, I have. Who, what show was it? It was Springsteen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we were on a family vacation. I don't know, four years ago, five years ago, and. Uh, we were supposed to come back, you know, whatever it was, like August 1st, but he was playing on August 4th. And I'm like, we are staying because I, I just wanted to go to Wembley Arena. I wouldn't have cared who was playing just so I could go to Wembley. But the fact that it was Springsteen, you know, so we extended our vacation. But I guess the farthest I've ever flown just for a show is probably uh, back to Boston or to – oh, no, Arizona. Again for Springsteen <laughs> in 2012. While you were at Wembley Stadium watching Springsteen, this is going to be a random question, but it's what popped into my head. Did it all occur to you to remember the Queen concert there? Have you ever seen Live at Wembley, Queen? I have not seen that. Oh, it's I on love YouTube. Queen. Oh, you got to check it out. I love Queen. At one point, he has the entire packed audience at the tip of his fingers. Oh, He's I'm just, sure. I mean, just, oh, you got to see it. Yeah, Queen is one of those bands that eluded me. I never, I never saw them. Um, you know, I was a big fan of Queen up until about like eighty one, or maybe eighty two, right around the Flash soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I kind of yeah, started that was, losing there was a, interest. There, there was a bit of bifurcation happening there. Yeah. You know, then because the, then they did like the Iron Eagle soundtrack and right. the Highlander soundtrack, which wasn't horrible, but yeah. I remember a song called "I Want It All." Yeah, that, that was, was pretty rocking. That song. was that was from the Highlander. Soundtrack. Oh, okay. I, I liked that song actually, but I don't. I don't think that they were as big in the states as they were everywhere else, right. and so they didn't tour here that often. And when they did, I guess I was just kind of like, meh. Yeah, I'll catch In them eventually, though, and then of course, probably like, yeah, yeah. There are so many bands that I missed. That so, I how seen. many of your twenty-two or so thousand albums are albums that you can that you will never skip a track on? I'm kind of pathetic. I mean, all of them are like that. really. Yeah, when I when I put on an album, I'm I'm all in. I listen to the whole thing from you beginning are to an end. Outlier. <laughs> and you know and and I get the the deluxe version with the bonus tracks and the demos and the outtakes and the live versions and all that. I mean like I I have that box set of pet sounds from the Beach Boys where you know half the tracks more than half the tracks are just vocal outtakes or like 30 seconds of a guitar solo right. or something they're each their own track right and you and still sit there and, and I work your way through it, it cuz somebody put it that put it, put it together that somebody way and you're going to honor their choices exactly huh. and you know I'm going to and it I hope it gives me a greater appreciation of the final product that was you know officially released hmm. do you have a favorite band uh, every day it kind of changes a little bit to, you know, like whoever I'm listening to at the moment is kind of my favorite. Uh, but you know, if I had to pick like desert Island stuff, mm -hmm. 
Uh, I mean, Miles Davis certainly is way up there. Uh, John Zorn, who's this great avant-garde um, composer and sax player out of New York, uh, who's still active and puts – he's probably put out a record while we've been sitting here talking. He's incredibly prolific. He puts out like 20 records a year it seems. Uh, Elvis Costello is a very big one for me and, and has been for uh, a couple decades. Tom Waits, The Beatles, Dylan. Um, Wilco, I love. Ah, the, yeah, yeah. the Weaker Thans. Yeah. Um, there are just all kinds of people. Lucinda Williams is amazing. Did Moxie Fruvis ever come across your path? Who is it? Moxie Fruvis. I don't know Moxie oh, Fruvis. Oh, time to mark you. I got something to talk Hook about me after the up. show, man. Hook me up, Mike Canary. They, uh, uh, Canada, early 90s, kept me from listening to grunge. Yeah? Yeah, and we'll talk later. <laughs> okay, great. I'm looking for. Like I said, I'm always looking to expand. Uh, what are some bands that, and, and you've already exposed me to one with your second choice. But what are some bands that our listeners would will never have heard of that you um, are like you got to go find them. You know, I, I I would never presume the tastes and knowledge of your listeners, so I'm not sure if anything I could suggest would be new to them. Um, but discoveries for me in the last few years that have been kind of revelatory. Um, you know, I really like this band out of Rhode Island named Deer Tick. And they're not all that new. They've been around for like a decade or more. Um, but they're also, you know, not in the top 40. So um, so Deer Tick is absolutely wonderful. And uh, I've been listening to a lot of them lately. Uh, there's another guy out of Chicago named Ezra Furman. F-U-R-M-A-N, who is terrific. Um, boy, what else have I been listening to that's kind of newish? Uh, Lack of Afro is a terrific band. They're kind of funky um, dance music. Uh, they sound a little bit like the Daptones who backed up Charles Bradley uh, just a really or, – or like the Budos band, you um, know, just somebody, very hard Somebody funk, else recommended that. Very grooving, you know, and, and um, you know, beat heavy. Uh, Tanarawin out of Africa, it's like this African uh, desert blues band hmm. is absolutely terrific. Uh, although, again, like if if you're not from the United States, probably you've heard of them because I think they're very big worldwide. Right, right, right. Um, God, who else? I mean, I think The Weaker Thans is a band that not a lot of people have heard of but should. Um, I mean, those are the people who spring immediately to mind, but I'm sure there are a few thousand others that are deserving of mention. Are there um, – is there anything on the on the current, you know, pop charts that you're into? You know, anything – the stuff that's – you know, the, the, the stuff that is popular right now. I cannot stop listening to Childish Gambino's This Is America. Hmm. Are you familiar with this? No, no, I'm pretty. Uh, I'm pretty out of touch. <laughs> oh my, I mean, it just came out like last week, and I keep saying, "Alexa, play This Is America." Alexa, play This Is America. I hope that's happening somewhere out in Radio Land. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, um, it's Donald Glover, uh, the oh, actor. Oh, okay. I've been hearing the news. Okay, yeah. I gotcha. Donald Glover, the actor, um, and his his rap name is Childish Gambino. Uh, okay, I am familiar. Um, then. And I'm familiar through the NPR coverage of there the, you go. The, the social impact of his, oh, his song video. and his uh, appearance on Saturday Night Live. Apparently, right, right. See, I know this from NPR listening, not from music. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, a, apart from the power of the video that accompanies that song, the song itself is incredibly powerful and also incredibly catchy. Um, 
So there's that. I also like Run the Jewels a lot. I don't know if you know them. Um, Killer Mike uh, is the leader of the band. I can't remember the other guy's name. Who I, it's a duo of rappers in there and they're really, really powerful and, and politically conscious. Um, and and I'm not huge into hip hop and rap. I, I, I certainly enjoy it and can appreciate it. But it's not the first thing I reach for uh, to listen to all the time. But I really love Run the Jewels, I think. I mm. think they're amazing and I think they're actually kind of if, – if a band can be important, I think they're important right now. Hmm. We need to start making play – or not playlists or just list these tracks on our web posts for this show. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, uh, Richard and I have been talking about that. Like take – you know, extract these recommendations and make them accessible to the people just reading before they click play. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to see lists from other people. Yeah, so again, yeah. I, can, I can discover new music. get an intern on that. <laughs> Um, okay, well, it is time for your last song. We know it's a weaker than song. Uh, set it up again for us. This is a song called "A Plea from a Cat Named Virtute," and um, it might be my favorite song from the Weaker Thans. And it's told from the point of view of a cat, which is just interesting uh, from kind of a storytelling perspective. And I use it in my classes as an example of how to use point of view and how anything can have a point of view and the whole purpose of choosing a point of view is developing empathy, you know, standing in that person's shoes, living in that person's head or that cat's head. And um, kind of the story being told in this song is it's a cat whose owner seems clinically depressed. There is something going on wrong with the, the cat's owner and the cat is going out of its way to be playful and encouraging and to try to cheer his owner up. And um, and so that's kind of very affirming as, as a message. But it's also, it's also a serious song. I mean it sounds kind of whimsical the way I'm describing it. But it's, it's some serious subject matter in that um, the final words of the song are, I know you're strong. And – I think that that's a good reminder for the listener to hear and to, you know, for any listener, because uh, you and I were talking about how some people have approached this podcast mm -hmm. and the music that they listen to and how it applies to their lives as, as therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And so if you're one of those people who turns to music for therapy, and I think we all do to a certain degree, I mm -hmm. think we all, you know, you put on sad songs when you get dumped, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> you put on happy mm -hmm. songs when your team wins and wallowing and jumping around. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we dance to music. It's celebratory, right? It's communal and, um, and it's life affirming. And so if you're going to turn to a song in a time of desperation or sadness or, you know, something as serious as depression, which of course goes beyond um, sadness, uh, something more chronic, it's good to hear I know you're strong. And, um, and I needed that reminder. Um, this album kind of uh, – the album it comes from is called Reconstruction Site and um, much of the album uh, or some of the album takes place in a hospital room. And um, – this song became particularly important to me when my son was born. Uh, this is back in 2009. Uh, in fact, his birthday is tomorrow. So, uh, so yeah, it was nine years ago to the day tomorrow. And he was born premature, a couple months, and he was only three, three pounds, three ounces. And it turned out he had an intestinal blockage upon birth. 
and he was rushed from Naples Hospital over to Miami for emergency surgery uh, about 36 hours after he was born, and we didn't know if he was going to make it. And uh, it was perhaps the most um, stressful time in my life. And, um, you know, we, we didn't know what was going to happen. And he spent the next two months in the NICU kind of fighting for his life. And so we moved over there. And every day we basically sat at the hospital all day looking at him in this little incubator uh, tied to all these tubes and wires and monitors and wondering if today was going to be the day. And we were staying at a friend's house on Miami Beach and so driving back and forth from uh, our friend's house to the hospital every day, I was listening to the Weaker Than's Reconstruction side album. That and Dan Burns' um, Fleeting Days album, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, no, New American Language. It was uh, a New American Language album. I love and that album. isn't that great? Uh, we, we, we could have a whole podcast just <laughs> geeking out over Dan Byrne, yeah. a genius um, and one of the nicest people you ever meet. But um, so anyway, so this song, um, in a way, I was, I was both the – I was both Virtute and the owner at the same time while I was listening to this song because I needed to be told that I had to be strong for my son – and I also kind of had to project to my son that he was strong yeah. and that he would be okay. I know this sounds incredibly weird and I know it's way too no, much to man, ask for in a is, pop song. This is how music works. <laughs> in a three and a half minute long song. But that's that's why I had to choose this song because um, – and, and you know what? What's great is that song lives beyond that tense time. You know, I still enjoy listening to that song and I don't always think about my son in the yeah. hospital when I listen to it. Sometimes I just like to rock out to this song. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, that's right. why I chose it. What's your what's your son, son's name? Charlie. Charlie. All right. Uh, well, let's hear it. This is a plea from a cat named Virtute by the Weaker Thans from their album Reconstruction Site. You're listening to Three Song Stories. Are the uh, Weaker Thans still making music together? They are not. They broke up a couple of years ago. John K. Sampson is releasing solo albums now. How are they? I think they're great. Uh, he put out one called Winter Wheat, I want to say a couple of years ago, and I've not heard anything else from him since. Um, you know, I, I, I know some people who know him, um, and their biggest complaint about him is that he He's not prolific enough. <laughs> like everybody loves his music so much um, and they just wish that he would put out more of it. And I think he actually has to kind of be pushed to write. You know, I think he's a guy who works on deadlines. But he also has a lot of other interests, you know, with his book company. And um, I'm not – you know, I don't know him that well. But I know he's, he's a busy, active guy in Winnipeg. And so um, I think music is just one of the things that he does. This might be a strange pivot, but do you miss record stores? So much. Do you ever f seek them out? I'll always. Whenever I go to a big city, uh, you know, you can usually find a couple of good independent record stores still open. And, um, and yeah, I will carve out time in any vacation to spend, uh, to spend a few hours in record stores because, um, you know, back when I was younger, that was it. 
Right. On you know, I'd get my paycheck on Friday, and I would immediately go to the record that store. That was email, Amazon, social networking, all put together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, back then, uh, if you were lucky, you'd go into a record store that had employees who were actual music fans, and you know, they would give you recommendations. I remember. Uh, I was I was a pretty young guy because I used to have to ride my bike to this place called Rocket Records in Saugus, Massachusetts. And um, I remember going in there to buy something, you know, that I heard on the radio, like the Eagles' greatest hits or something. And I walked in and I knew this guy, Bob, who worked behind the counter. And I think I brought my, my Eagles album up to the – you know, to the uh, cash register. And he's like, you don't want this. <laughs> he's like, this is what you want. And he handed me a copy of uh, Black Flag's Damaged Album. I don't talk, know. Talk about a pivot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, quite to the other extreme. And, you know, that was one of those albums that changed my life. That mm-hmm. was one of those albums that changed the way I listened to everything. Um, because it was it was so angry and feral and um, powerful. And um, and it was the perfect thing for, you know, a 13-year-old kid with um, too much testosterone mm-hmm. and uh, too much energy. And and so that became one of those soundtrack albums of my youth. And, um, and you know, like everyone, I, I have a whole bunch of those. Is there a song that you will always turn off if it comes on the radio? <sighs> y- you know, I was thinking about songs that I hate. <laughs> And I and I almost feel bad mentioning them because a song that I hate will be someone else's well, favorite absolutely. song, it, 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 and it, I never want to put down anybody's yeah, it, musical it, taste. But because it has nothing. It, well, I don't say it's nothing, but it very often has very little to do with the song and just your associations to it. So I don't think you're putting Perhaps. down the music. Unless, well, maybe you are. Well, no, I am putting down the music, man. If, if I, I hate, you know, because I mean, Duke Ellington said there are two kinds I try of to give music. You, you know, there's the good kind. There's there's good music, and then there's the other kind. Right. And everyone thinks that they listen to good music, and they think everyone else listens to the other kind sure. if they listen to different things. There's something deeper there, you know. Think about it. <laughs> and um, and so I try I try not to cop that attitude, uh, though I have copped it in the past where. Um, I, I, I certainly don't think that my listening tastes are superior to anyone else's, but oh my God, I I hope I never, ever, ever hear another note from Guns N' Roses for the rest of my really? life. Really? Interesting. I have hated them from the second I first heard them. I And I can't explain why because they're not really any more offensive or – than anybody else in that sure. genre. Sure, yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's and, an And I can appreciate one. songs, even though it's not the first thing I go to listen to. But like say if um, 18 in Life by Skid Row comes on the radio or Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison comes on the radio or Girls, Girls, Girls by Motley Crue comes on the radio, I don't turn them off. Right. I don't care but and i kind of enjoy them right you know right but they don't bother me but gnr bothers you i think slash is a fine guitarist i think that they can play well i think the production is okay probably my problem is with axel rose's voice i don't know there's something about and maybe it's because they were so lauded and so loved um that I figured if that many people like them this much, they can't be that good. I don't know. There's something about them that I've always kind of reacted against and pushed away. And and I've, I've actually tried. 
because I feel like the problem is with me. It's not with the band. It's not with their fans. It's got to be with me because now I'm of the attitude, if this many people like them that much, there has to be something I am missing. And so I keep trying. And every time I hear them, I just want to, you know, leap from my car, my moving car, if they come on the radio. I'm like, okay, I'll give it 30 seconds of Welcome to the Jungle or, you know, Paradise City or whatever. And I just don't get it. Hmm. It just is something in my brain rejects it. I have the same problem with the Rolling Stones, if you can believe it. <gasps> right? Really? Right. Even the Sticky Fingers album? I just kind of No, I just – for me, I think it's more. It's less about what I hear and more about just some memories I have associated with the Rolling Stones that just may be like, ah, I'm just going to turn you guys off. I okay. don't know. It's weird. You know? And, and I get it. I mean yeah. that's, that's valid. Uh, that's legitimate. Um, and, and I wish I could say that I had negative associations with Guns N' Roses beyond the Yours sound. Yours is just visceral. Just, yeah. It is. Like uh, one of my best friends growing up, he's the one who played that record for me like – a couple of days after it came out and all the people I know who like them, I like these people. Right. <laughs> you know, so well, it's not like funny how- it's not like my 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 arch enemy from high school, my nemesis, w- like wore a Guns N' Roses shirt the day I fought him or something. Yeah, it's yeah, nothing yeah. like that. Nothing. Uh, that's so interesting. Um, well, okay. Uh, that is, you know, the end of our run here, Tom. Well, um, I, I would hate to end on, on the negative, though. Well, Can I end on the positive? Absolutely. I was going to give you a, a chance to do that. You beat me to it, but go for it. Okay. I just want to say, uh, when you asked me before of the, uh, if there are any bands that um, I think people should hear that they might not have heard of, uh, there's a guy named David Ramirez out of Texas who has the most gorgeous voice and who is such an incredible songwriter. I think everyone should take a, check out uh, David Ramirez. And there's another guy named Gregory Allen Isakoff out of Colorado who uh, also is just – has a mesmerizing voice and gorgeous songs. And he put out an album a couple of years ago with a symphony orchestra that's worth checking out. Uh, and as I mentioned uh, whenever we started that I, I give CDs to my students, every time I've given a student uh, a CD from Gregory Allen Isakoff, they come back and thank me. Hmm. They're like, who is this guy? And I want more. Hmm. Well, thank you for doing this. Uh, I mentioned in the intro that I that we didn't know each other super well. What I love about this show is I feel like I know you pretty good now. All right. All right. Well, we should hang. <laughs> yeah, and we should. You, and you can hook me up with some of that Canadian music. You yeah, me no, I, I absolutely will. This uh, this has been great. I want to thank my guest. Tom DeMarkey is a writing professor at FGCU, director of the Sanibel Island Writers Conference, the 13th of which happens in November 13, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's number 13, and, and we go from uh, November 8th to 11th. All right. Well, Tom, this has uh, been great fun. Thanks. Thank you so much. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Our show's producer, director, and co-creator is Richard Chinqui. Tara Calligan and Anna Bejarano produce our online content, and Chris Duffus is our executive producer. Our theme music was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Before my parting tune, I want to remind you that we want your best song story. Think hard. What song takes you back to a definite time, place, or memory? Once you've got it, just record your story on your phone and send it to mysongstory at wgcu.org, and maybe we'll use it as a parting tune in a future episode of Three Song Stories. My parting tune this week is from a guy who Tom DeMarkey knows quite well. His name is Dan Byrne. I, and I'm sure many, if not most, of his fans consider him to be not only 
an amazing songwriter and musician and person, but a truly great American poet in every sense of the descriptor. I've got lots of stories in my head connected to this song, which is called Wasteland, from driving cross-country in 2001 in my crappy old Pontiac, watching Dave, Dave, Dave cover it for a bunch of hippies at MAGFest in the mid-2000s, daydreaming my way around Copenhagen to it in 2010, even watching Dan himself perform it live on stage at Big Arts during the 2013 Sanibel Island Writers Conference. Tom was there. I've always thought this song kind of just says it all, and I'm downright happy to spring it on you via this podcast today. And here we go. This is Wasteland from Dan Burns' 1997 self-titled album, I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening. Got so heavy. Next time on Three Song Stories. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. <laughs> I hate that song with every fiber of my being. It's not funny. It's not funny. They think it's funny. It's not funny.